So Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be starting from verse 1. Verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God. Wow. Big warm welcome to everyone here this morning. And uh, welcome to those who are joining the live stream. I don't know if you've seen uh, on the wider angle uh, how many people are packed in here. Uh, but this is amazing. Uh, this is absolutely amazing. It was in March of last year uh, that we began a short sermon series called The Welcoming Church. At the exact same time as lockdown happened, And we preached through a series called The Welcoming Church, and we had five people in church. (laughs) A few months later, we were able to have nine people, which was, for an extrovert, a complete breath of fresh air. Uh, And then slowly, we were able to increase that to 20 or so. Um, And for the last nine-ish, six to nine-ish months or so, we've been able to have 48. This is much, much better. Um, I'm going to do something that I don't ever, ever do. I'm going to take a photo <laughs> from here. So everyone needs to stay in their seats. Hang on. Okay, here we go. Okay, say smile. I'll smile on this side. Okay, everyone over here, smile. All right. Excellent. Okay. Um, I'm also going to do something we haven't done in a little while, too. We're going to take a short break <laughs> from, the, <laughs> from the service. And we're going to turn to the person next to us and say hello. And uh, let me encourage you to, if you have your Bibles with you, please keep them open to Ephesians 4, and we'll be back in a few short moments. Okay, everyone, let's come back together. So, another big one welcome to uh, everyone here today. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors of the church. Uh, most everyone here is on the serving team or one of the family members of a serving team. Uh, so great to have everyone here and all these faces here. As we always do, 
uh, let me pray as we, before we dive into this really important topic of church unity and ask God to bless us as we hear this word uh, and receive it and maybe uh, rise up to the challenge uh, of growing our unity together. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, how good it is when your family dwells together in unity of the Spirit. How good it is that we can be here, gathered together. And so we pray that our gathering today will not just be of people under one roof, but will be of your people to hear your word, to receive it with joy, with soft hearts, with broken hearts, to respond in love and kindness and the grace flowing through us that you've given to us. We pray that our gathering today, whether it be here in person or in small home groups today, will be a blessing to us and a blessing to each other as we grow our unity together as a church. For we ask these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen. In his Ephesians commentary, Kent Hughes tells this story. J. Dwight Pentecost tells of a church split which was so serious, each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the others from the church, completely disregarding the biblical injunction not to go to court against fellow believers. The civil courts threw it out, but eventually it came to a church court where it belonged, and the high judiciary of the church made its decision and awarded the church property to one of the two factions. The losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. In the course of the proceedings, the courts found that the conflict had begun at a church dinner when an elder received a smaller slice of ham than the child seated next to him. A slice of ham destroyed this church's unity. Now we can shake our heads at that and we can say, wow, how can a slice of ham do that? Or perhaps we can say the personal pride of one of the elders. Now after a story like that, it would, it would just, you hear that and you kind of go, that, that's so sad. It kind of does make sense. We know what people are like. And we would kind of think to ourselves, wow, unity in a church is such a fragile thing. How do we stop it from crumbling because of our own pride? Or more positively, how do we build our unity to prevent any sort of split like that from happening? Before we get into that, though, before we get into what the Bible says about unity, I think it will be good to clear up what unity is not. I want to say three quick things about what unity is not. Firstly, unity is not a virtue in of itself. Being together and having the same mind and purpose is by itself not necessarily a good thing. In Genesis 11, humanity was united, united in their language, united in their purpose, united in building a big tower into for, to, for, to build a name for themselves. They wanted to build a big tower to reach into the sky so that they would have a bigger name, a bigger reputation than God. Not good. In the Gospel of Luke, after having been enemies for so long, Herod and Pilate end up as friends, united together in their contempt of Jesus. 
Over the past few years on the news, we've watched as various crowds and mobs, uh, united by their own particular causes, have destroyed property and caused chaos. So unity, just by itself, isn't necessarily a good thing. Second, unity is not uniformity. When we speak of unity in the church, we do not mean everyone looking the same. Now, some of you know that I quite enjoy food, and I consider myself to be a bit of a connoisseur of fine foods, such as chicken nuggets. (laughs) Now, as a connoisseur of this fine food, I've noticed over the years how their shape and their taste and their quality never changes. It's always the same. And I've wondered on occasion why all chicken nuggets always look exactly the same, like they've been pressed through some sort of mold or cookie cutter. And then I ponder their deep nutritional value and think better not to think of it too much. Now, the church is not a collection of chicken nuggets. Yes, I just compared everyone here to chicken nuggets. People who all look the same, who all have the same personality, who have the same gifts, the same education level. Unity is not uniformity. Number three, unity doesn't happen and isn't built just by being in the same room together. Uh, The idea that being together builds unity, I think it feels like it's a particularly Asian thing. Uh, Not everyone here is Asian, but from those from an Asian background, this might feel familiar. Uh, for many of us from this kind of Asian background, you, you know what it's like to have, uh, pe- to have your family at home. But when your family is at home with your family time, you've got your parents in the living room watching TV, you've got the kids in the bedroom or in the next room on their phones, and you've got the grandparents in the garden. But as long as everyone is under the same roof together, in that moment, there is a sense of family, a sense of togetherness. But is that biblical a biblical picture of family. See, we can apply that unhelpful picture to church life as well. And we think that unity simply comes about because our church comes together under one roof to do lots of activities. So every now and then I hear conversations that our church and our churches should hold more church-wide events together where everyone in church comes along because that would be a great unity builder. But I'm afraid that that events in of themselves do not promote unity. Otherwise, the New Testament would be filled with commands to keep instructing us to gather in church-wide events to promote our unity. Now, the Bible says that unity is something more than this, more than just physically being together. So, if you have your Bibles with you, please, let's gonna, we'll turn to that now and uh, open up with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to walk through what this passage says about biblical unity. Now, as we walk through this passage, in the outline, if you have the outline there, point 1B on the outline, I want us to notice six things that this passage says about unity, six markers of biblical unity. Marker number one, unity is built upon the gospel. Have a look again at chapter 4, verse 1, and you'll notice that the passage, our passage begins with a therefore. So, what is the question that we ask whenever we see a therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? Thank you, Dan. Yes, some audience in congregational interaction. All right, therefore is a connecting word. It's, it's saying that what I'm about to say now is connected and built upon what I've just said. So what does chapter 4, verse 1's therefore connect to? 
Well, here's where you're having, having a physical Bible really, really helps because you can scan and see these connections really, really quickly. So if you walk back in your Bibles and you look at chapter 3, verse 14, kind of the, the previous section, you notice that in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul, excuse me, Paul says, for this reason, which is kind of another way of saying therefore. Oh, okay, so chapter 4, verse 1 connects back to chapter 3, verse 14, which is connected back to something earlier. Okay, so go back a bit earlier, chapter 3, verse 1. So from 3.14 to 3.1, and again, Paul begins the sentence with, for this reason. Okay, I kind of, another kind of therefore. Okay, go back again, chapter 2, verse 11, the kind of previous next big chunk. And again, notice that Paul starts with a therefore. Okay, keep going back to chapter 2, verse 1. Ah, now we're getting where somewhere. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. This is, in some ways, one of the most well-known and central parts of the book of Ephesians. Paul outlines the gospel. Follow with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in our sins. End of chapter 2, verse 3. Because of our sins, we were by nature children of wrath. We had God's righteous wrath and anger upon us for our rebellion against him. But then there in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but God, rich in mercy, has saved us by grace. Explains that a little bit more, and then he gets to chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, and let me read out these famous verses, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the center of the gospel right there. We who were rebellious sinners deserving judgment, we have been saved from that wrath by sheer grace, undeserved kindness, a free gift from God, the gift of forgiveness and reconciliation with him. And it comes as a gift at no cost. We do not earn it by our works. We cannot boast that we have done enough good to deserve this free gift. I want to ask everyone before, everyone listening, before we move on, have you received this free gift? Or do you remain under God's wrath and anger? It is never too late for anyone to receive this gift. Paul goes on to argue in chapters 2 to 3 that God has graciously included Gentiles, people who are outside of his initial blessings. They now get to receive those blessings. And through Jesus, old dividing walls that between Jew, uh, those who are God's people and those who are not, those dividing walls are broken down. And it's upon this gospel good news that Paul turns in chapter 4, verse 1, to talk about unity. And he starts chapter 4, verse 1, with a therefore. If God has been so gracious to us in the gospel, if Jesus has broken down the dividing walls and has brought together a people to be united together as one, therefore, I want you, church, to pursue this unity. So in this little word, therefore, we have our first point about unity. It is built upon the gospel. Okay, back to Ephesians 4. Uh, Point number two, unity flows out in actions which take place in a local gathered church. So have a look at me again and read with me again, chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, the you there in verse 1 is plural. That's a tricky English thing if, you're not, if you weren't aware of it. The singular for you is you. The plural for you is you. Uh, in Australian slang, we say you's guys. Right? Southern Americans say you all, y'all. The point is that the church, not individuals, but the church collectively are called towards action, to be humble and gentle, to have patience and bear with each other. These actions all happen in a church setting. We are to humbly and gently, uh, be humble and gentle towards each other. We are to bear with each other in love. Paul says that this is the calling of every believer in church. You see that there in verse 1. He urges the Ephesians to do these things because they have been called to do them. God calls his people to this high and noble task. This is why just simply physically gathering and being together in one space for an event does not automatically equate to unity. Unity needs to be seen in the way that we love and serve each other in these ways. Right? So unity is something that we, uh, uh, unity uh, is flowing out in actions in our local gathered church. Point number three, unity is something we need to eagerly maintain. So along with these actions listed in verse one and two, believers are also to be eager to maintain the unity uh, there. Ephesians chapter four, verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So to be eager about something is to be passionate, to be energetic about it. We, we all have our different passions in life, the various things that get us fired up. But as a church, we should value, and we do value, and we should be passionate and fired up about our unity in the Spirit. Now, the, the phrase here, unity of the Spirit, is really important. The unity of the Spirit here is referring to our oneness, our togetherness, that the Holy Spirit has already achieved for us in the Gospel. So the Father sovereignly planned, the Son came, he died, and he rose to life again, and the Spirit takes that historical event and he applies it to our lives in the present. When the Spirit applies the gospel, he achieves unity. Unity and peace between us and God vertically, and unity and peace between each of us horizontally. Now, here's the point. We are maintaining unity, not creating it. We didn't create peace between us and God. The Holy Spirit applied that to our lives. We didn't create this church community. The Holy Spirit does that when he takes the gospel and renews hearts and minds and gathers believers together. So our eagerness, our passion, our energy is to be maintaining and preserving the unity we have in the gospel. Okay, quick recap before we go on. Number one, unity is built on the gospel. Number two, unity flows out in actions which take place in the local church. And number three, unity is something we need to eagerly maintain. Number four, unity is expressed in oneness. Have a look at verses four to six with me. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is telling the church here that they are to have one mind and heart when it comes to theology, when it comes to understanding God, to faith and to worship. This, is, this picture of oneness is a picture of unity. There, there are not multiple faiths to God. There's only one path to God through Jesus Christ. There is only one hope that we have, the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation through the gospel. One baptism, one moment in which we are united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. And just as we are one in those areas of understanding, so we are one body. I think it's worth saying here too that oneness allows for diversity. I said before that unity does not mean sameness. It does not mean that we all look the same, have the same personality, have the same economic social class, and this also includes the same ethnicity or race. Diversity is a beautiful opportunity to express oneness in Christ. Now, in saying this, I'm not pushing our present church to become multicultural overnight. I do think that there is something to be said about homogenous churches and the strength of like attracting like. But if we are to express biblical unity, then we must be inclusive of everyone who walks through those doors. Diversity is such a big buzzword in our world at the moment, isn't it? But it's not working. I can see all the pushes for diversity in the world at the moment, but I can also see how people are increasingly fed up with it. Because diversity in our world is based on representing identity groups. And then you get all that weird stuff about identity politics and intersectionality coming in, and it just messes up everything. Biblical diversity is rooted in the gospel. God has done a work in people from all sorts of backgrounds. And he's done that graciously and freely for everyone. And so when Christians gather, we have the biggest and the best reason to tear down racial barriers and to tear down class barriers because of the gospel work in each of us. We have the biggest motivation to love and to serve each other. The glory of God manifested in our diverse, encouraging, and love-saturated gatherings. Church should be a place where the outsider comes in and says, wow, this is the place where the love and the diversity and the unity are truly found. Number five, unity is expressed in diversity of gifts. Have a look with me at chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the word grace there in verse 7 does not mean saving grace, but the gifts of grace. We are all saved by grace equally, we are not all, but we are not all gifted by grace in the same way. Right? We all enter into this church with the same grace given to us to save us and forgive us. But that same grace gives us in diff- with different abilities, a, a church, in church, There is a diversity of abilities and gifts. Some of us can teach. Some of us are administrators. Praise God for that because it's not me. Some are great at doing practical acts of service. Others are much better doing the organizing. Whatever it is, each one of us are given some gift 
to serve the body. So you see in the middle of verse 7, each one of us are gifted in some shape or form. There is no member of our church, no Christian in Christ's kingdom who is useless. At a youth, com- at a youth camp once, someone, one of the teens asked me, what if, you know, we, we're all different parts of the body of Christ, but what happens if you're the appendix? And I, I didn't know what to say to that. But then I thought, well, apparently the appendix has some sort of use. I'm not exactly sure, but apparently it does. Uncle Mike is nodding his head. He knows a bit more than me. But every single member of the church has some sort of function and use. From the oldest to the youngest among us, we are to use what we have and are given to build each other up and grow our unity. I know that there are some who have concluded, I've got no spiritual gift. I've got nothing to offer. But that is not true. And you know why? Because you just spoke. If you have the ability to speak words with your mouth, you have the ability to encourage others. If you can speak words with your mouth, you have the opportunities and the ability, the gift of encouragement. So if you feel like a lowly teenager hiding away in the teen's corner of our church, then you can still speak. You can get to know someone older than you and encourage them with what you're learning in the Bible or what you're being challenged with. And you can be bold enough to pray with people as well. And hey, you don't need just to be a teenager to do that. Anyone can do that. Sometimes we're too afraid to put ourselves out there, but be encouraged, friends to speak, to love each other with our words. Number six, last one, unity's goal is godliness and maturity in faith. We saw this last week, but let's read it again. Chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now last week we looked at the topic of discipleship and we saw how we are to mature in the faith. And I mentioned how maturity and discipleship are connected with unity. Here it is in verses 11 and 12. God has gifted various teaching roles to the church to equip believers for ministry so that the church builds itself up together until verse 13 we attain unity of faith and maturity in Christ. Discipleship and unity are meant to be intertwined. The more mature in our faith together we grow, the more we should be united together in our faith. And as we grow closer together, so too should we mature each other. So the idea of maturing the believer, uh, so the idea of a maturing believer who is apart from the church doesn't make sense. Just as much as it would make little biblical sense to say that your church is united together, but your members remain immature in their faith. So, quick recap. In Ephesians 4, we saw six markers of biblical unity. Number one, unity is first and foremost built upon the gospel. The gospel which has broken down barriers between believers and reconciled us to God and to each other. Number two, unity is seen in godly actions towards each other in the local church setting. 
Number three, unity is something all believers are to eagerly and passionately maintain. Number four, unity is expressed in our oneness of mind and heart, in what we believe and how we worship God. Number five, unity is also expressed in the diversity of the God's gifts among his people, all of us using our gifts to love and build each other up. And then number six, unity's goal is godliness and maturity of faith. So by now it should be hopefully pretty obvious that we should pursue unity in the church. Nobody wants disunity. Anyone who has been with our church for longer than 15 years knows the history of disunity in the Chinese Christian Church of Brisbane. It's a sad history, but a reality. But let me briefly give three other reasons why we should pursue unity as a church. See, Ephesians chapter 4 is not the only reason, is not the only passage for why we should pursue unity. The first reason, the first extra reason is because God is a united being. Hear what Jesus prays in John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. John 17 here is the climax of a very long monologue from Jesus, started all the way back in John chapter 14. By the time we reach John 17 now, we have Jesus praying for his disciples and for all future disciples. You see that there in verse 20. Jesus is praying not only for the disciples in the room with him, but for everyone who will believe their message. Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is praying for SLE Church, for you listening to this right now. And every believer who has heard and responded to the gospel, Jesus is praying this prayer. And what is the prayer? In verse 21, that they may be united just as the Son and the Father are united together. Sin messes up our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. Jesus has come to restore all of that, to restore relationship with the Father and to restore relationships with each other. Jesus then prays for a unity among his people that will reflect the unity he has with his Father and that we have with God himself. Why should we eagerly pursue unity? Because God himself is united. Secondly, We should pursue unity for the reason at the end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you, Father, have sent me, the Son. When the church is a place of love, a place where people are quick to encourage and to serve each other, a place of diversity where all people from all sorts of backgrounds and cultures earnestly love each other, when the church is united in this way, It is one of the greatest proofs to the truth and the goodness and the beauty of the gospel. When I first started as a pastor here at Esley Church in 2012, our church structure was quite different. We had a monthly elders meeting, but it wasn't just elders of Esley Church. It was elders of all the five churches under the Chinese Christian Church of Brisbane banner. And we would meet together. But my very first meeting of elders as a pastor, a new pastor 
was to deal with a massive issue that was going on in one of the other churches where division was happening. Long story short, there was basically one church in the group very unhappy with another church, and it, and it ended up with a mass exodus of people from that church. Now, shortly after that, uh, it was quite a few months of back and forth and this exodus happening. After this exodus had happened, I bumped into one of those congregation, one of those ex-congregation members. I was at a shop somewhere down on the south side in Sunnybank, and I said hi, and we chatted briefly. And then I asked this person, which church did they end up going to? And they said to me they stopped going to church. I gently asked why. And their reply was simple. How can I believe in God when God's people treat each other like that? Friends, we, we do not have a choice in this matter. Unity in our church is something we must be eager for, something we need to defend and work really hard for. We need to work hard so that because as it reflects the goodness of God to our world and to each other. The gospel works and it saves. And one of the biggest proofs that it works is the church itself, the gospel made visible. Okay, so how do we pursue that? We know what church unity is. We know why we should pursue it. Next question is how do we pursue it? As with last week, let me walk through some applications that I think are drawn not only from Ephesians, but also from uh, pastoral experience. Six quick applications to finish this up. Number one, remember that unity is first built upon the gospel and our theology. There can be no unity where the gospel is watered down, downplayed or ignored. There can be no unity with someone who holds or teaches a false gospel. That means our discipleship, our maturity in Christ will guard proper biblical unity. Unity is a core value of our church and it works hand in hand with our growing maturity, our discipleship in Christ. Now, if unity is built upon the gospel and our theology, then it will require a fair amount of discernment and wisdom and humility on our parts to work out what is crucial to agree on and what is less crucial to agree on. Right? And there's quite, a, there's quite a spectrum of really important to unimportant things to believe as a Christian. As a brief example of what is super important on this end, you've got doctrines like the Trinity, the divinity, the divinity of Jesus, the divine inspiration of the scriptures, right? So those are crucial things that we have to have agreement on. On the less crucial, less important end, you know, what style of music we sing, what colour the carpet should be. That might sound like a silly example, but I read of a church split because of the colour of the carpet. Let's keep that in perspective. But as I said, it will take a fair amount of discernment and wisdom and humility to work out where an issue sits on that, that spectrum of importance. But the more important something is doctrinally, the more we must hold to agreement in order to be biblically unified. So number one, don't forget that our unity must be built upon the gospel and our theology. Number two, repeated from last week, and also I think clearly here in Ephesians 4, in order to value and grow biblical unity, we must be committed to attendance. There may be times and seasons of absence from church life. 
in a biblical unity will actually mean that people will go to you and minister to you. But if you are able, but you prioritize other things over fellowship, if weekend sports takes you out of church, if a new hobby or commitment pushes you out of fellowship group time, if the stress of studying exams keeps you away, then your absence steals from, your, from our unity. Imagine going up a hike for a hike up Mount Kutha. Now, in order to do that, your whole body needs to be prepared and willing to go. But if halfway up the hike, your knee says, no, 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 I'm going to go back home and uh, sit on the couch, and your knee disappears on you, then you would be in serious trouble. Your whole body would suffer. I heard recently of one guy in one of our fellowship groups that I oversee. He's, uh, He's not very regular. Work commitments keep him from coming to church and Bible study. But he shared with another friend that he doesn't think his absence is noticed. Nobody seems to care that he is not there. Friends, it should not be like that. Oneness is expressed in being committed to part of the body. And we should all deeply feel the absence of a member. So we value unity we will be committed to church life and to each other. Number three, pursue maturity in the faith for yourself and for the unity of our church. Now, Ephesians 4 is pretty clear. A maturing disciple is a unifying presence in the church. I was greatly humbled and encouraged to hear from last week's sermon on discipleship that quite a few people have entered into and are seeking out one-to-one discipleship relationships to grow and mature each other. Now my prayer is that those discipleship relationships will build our church as each believer is matured individually in the faith. And because there is no unifying if if because if there is no unifying presence, then it's hard to say that genuine maturity is happening. Years ago, in my days at YF, so in my early 20s, YF, the youth fellowship of our group, you know, our church was much smaller. Uh, and YF in those days was one of the few groups in our church which was growing in number, actively growing in number. You know, a bunch of us was con- were constantly flying down to Sydney for conferences and being trained up to read and to teach the Bible. And it was an exciting time. But we did all of that on our own. And we ignored the older generations. We wrote them off. They they don't understand us. They won't do things our way. So we just ignored them. We thought that we were maturing. I can look back on that and say, no, we were fracturing our church. Now, by God's grace, he completely split up all the wifers. He sent us in all sorts of different directions. And two of those young punks are now pastors of SLE Church. And we are now humbly calling on you to not repeat the same mistake. A maturing disciple of Jesus is a unifying presence in the church. Number four, pursue reconciliation. When relationships are broken, when things aren't right, when there's tension between two people, the gospel calls us to reconcile. The gospel is the message of our reconciliation with God. And the gospel is most displayed in our lives 
when we reconcile with those we have broken fellowship with. So when you have a Facebook friend who's just really annoying, they're posting up vague posts constantly and constantly posting up silly things that chew up your entire newsfeed, it's so easy to just unfriend them. You know, three clicks of your mouse and they're gone. But church life is not like that. Because God did not unfriend us or ghost us when our relationship with him was broken. God so loved the world that he gave his only son and he did so to reconcile ourselves to him. If we choose, if we actively choose to not reconcile relationships because we don't want to or because we find it too hard, too messy, you're essentially saying the gospel doesn't work. Reconciliation is hard. It is difficult. It is awkward and super uncomfortable. But we pursue it because the gospel calls us to. And when there is true reconciliation, it makes it worth it. Number five, a word of warning. Watch out for those who cause division. Titus chapter 3, Romans 16. Titus 3, Romans 16. Both of these passages have warnings to watch out for those who stir up division. Uh, There are people who just love to pick a fight, who love playing devil's advocate, not because it's helpful for others, but because they just love controversy. There are some who also have particular hobby horses that they love, especially when their hobby horse conflicts with what the leadership believes or teaches. They love drawing every conversation back to this hobby horse, and in particular, they want to see who else agrees with them against others. Paul warns that those who cause division need to be warned once and then twice, and then they need to be excommunicated. The divisive person left unchecked can powerfully break the unity of the church. Now, at this point, I want to say a pastoral word on a potentially touchy topic. In the past 18 months, the world has been gripped by the COVID-19 pandemic. That's pretty clear. What's also pretty clear as well is that many people have very strong opinions on COVID-19 and, in particular, more recently, strong opinions on the vaccine. Or the vaccines, I should say. Opinions strong enough to potentially cause division, especially when it comes to how churches should navigate all the new rules and the regulations. Here's what I want to say to those among us who have very strong opinions on these things. First, I want to say that it's good to have informed opinions. Right? We certainly have the freedom to do that, to read what we want, to, to formulate our own views. I also want to be clear that the Bible speaks strongly about respecting the consciences of others. On matters where the Bible is silent, we need to exercise love and humility towards those who have different consciences than us. So if you have an opinion on the vaccines that differs from the mainstream health advice, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But confronting others and telling others off for not being in line with your opinion is not fine. Asking people pointedly if they have done their research is not loving nor helpful. 
Now, if you honestly believe that you are the stronger brother, then you have a duty to your weaker brothers to love and care for them and to not make them feel guilty for their views. And your duty is to build them up in Christ, to not build them up in the image of your particular opinion. So, watch for those who cause division and appeal to them to repent. Number six, a, finally a word of encouragement. Watch for stories of grace. Finding out about these stories is one of the most encouraging things. Over the years in our church, we've generally held our annual general meeting on Sunday afternoons. And we've done that mostly because I think we treated it purely as an administrative meeting. Uh, this year, however, we decided to change that. We moved it to a Saturday morning, which I know is a little bit inconvenient for a lot of people. But we made the AGM a part of what we, a morning that we called Stories of Grace where we got to hear from church members about what God has been doing in their lives. So we got to hear from one member about how she began a one-to-one discipleship relationship with another person younger than them. Super encouraging. We heard from one member about his struggles with the faith and how God's word has helped him wrestle with his doubts. We heard about God, what God has been doing in key ministries in our church and in international students and in kids' church. And one of the feedbacks I kept hearing again and again on that day and afterwards was this. That was so encouraging to hear. It was a truly encouraging time. It was a unifying time, and it's unifying to hear what God has been doing and remembering in our ministry partnerships and all of this. But we don't need a a once-a-year AGM and Stories of Grace morning to hear these things. We can just turn to the person next to us and ask, how has God been at work in your life? What are you reading in the Bible at the moment that you find challenging or encouraging? How can I pray for you? Friends, our fourth core value as Essily Church is gospel unity. We believe that the gospel has broken down all barriers between us, reconciling believers from all backgrounds to himself and to each other. We love each other. We resolve conflicts. We work hard and eagerly to maintain our unity together. And we do all of this to show that the gospel really works, because it does. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, continue to equip us through your word and through the gifts that you've given our church that we might minister to each other, building each other up until we attain unity. Unity is something we have, something we constantly work for. And so we pray for a unity of faith and of knowledge of your Son. We pray for a a unity built on our maturing discipleship as measured by your Son. And we pray this ultimately for your glory and our joy together. And so we ask, Father, that you'd help us to keep doing this in love, in Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen.